You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Grateful um, as a parent to a couple of those students for you adults who went with them and stayed up uh, basically for a week and came back. It's the church's version of Hell Week. And so um, we appreciate you coming back and bringing the kids back safely and getting a little, a little sleep. Um, so this morning is our next to last week through Genesis. We're going to look at the life of Jacob, uh, the life of, uh, life of Jacob. There are a lot of chapters devoted to Jacob. But we're going to spend a little, uh, a little more time looking at the circumstance around his uh, marriage and what happened with Laban, his father-in-law, Leah, and Rachel. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them. Uh, you can open your app, check the notes section in there. We'll start um, around Genesis 28. Um, Jacob's story picks up in Genesis 27 and goes on from there. Um, I don't know if you know this, I know some of you will, but the worst month of the year in the U.S. in terms of uh, just emotional and mental state is February, is February. Uh, There are a couple of primary reasons for that. One, uh, most people have long broke whatever goals or resolutions they'd made for the new year by then and are reminded that whatever the new year is, they're still themselves, right? So they've just given up and thrown their hands Uh, uh, by then. The second reason is because it holds what is certainly uh, the worst of American holidays in it, Valentine's Day. The day that lies to everyone, sets unrealistic expectations, and creates more pressure on men than any holiday in human history or culture ever has. Part of the problem here is that uh, we live, as most people do in a society, that absolutely does not understand love and relationships. And it's worse for us as it has been for modern people over the last number of decades who've been able to, to watch on television since the advent of TV. Sometimes our kids will say, did they have TV when you were growing up, Dad? Yes. We're not the ancient of days. Your mom and I are not. They even had color TV when we were growing up. But for decades now, we have had put before us a picture of human relationships and romantic relationships that is absolutely absurd and not true. But when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is very honest and unsentimental about human relationships, and that includes marriage. The ultimate testimony of the Bible is this, that it is, it is hard and sometimes devastating to be single. And it is hard and sometimes devastating to be married. Both are true. Both are true and they come and go at times in our relationships. Now, before we jump in to Genesis 28, I want to give you just a little background here to catch you up from where we left off last week uh, with Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca gets pregnant by the hand and power of God. She's having twin boys. And the Lord comes to her and says... Hey, unlike the usual custom in your day where the firstborn has all the rights of privilege, the older is actually going to serve the younger here. 
And what the Lord is telling Rebecca and telling Isaac is that it's the younger of these twins, the second one to pop out, who's going to be the child of promise, the child of the covenant that God has made with Abraham and his descendants. And so it is. So it is. Esau was the firstborn. He was incredibly hairy. Some of you have seen hairy babies like that. They look like fur-bearing mammals. Um, you wonder how they'll even be able to see as they get older with the hair. He was extremely hairy, kind of uh, reddish, probably uh, ruddy, red-haired, uh, tough kind of kid. Um, he was an outdoorsman. He was Isaac, the dad's favorite. Jacob comes next. Jacob is a little more tender, a little softer. He's more of an inside type. He's Rebecca, the mom's favorite. And and favorite in every way that is wrong, in every way that is destructive in a family when parents genuinely have favorites, a child they genuinely love more than another, a child they genuinely show favor to over another. And it wreaks havoc on Esau and Jacob. Esau, as he grows up, becomes impulsive and abrasive just in his character. Jacob, as he grows, becomes manipulative and entitled. And in time, through uh, deception that his mom helped orchestrate, he fools his dad, who was older, Isaac was, couldn't see well. He fools his dad into giving him the covenant blessing. The covenant blessing. Esau is angered by this. And he says to himself, dad's not going to live too much longer. And after dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going to kill Jacob. Word gets back to Jacob's dad, Isaac, and decides it's time for, for Jacob to find a wife. Much like Abraham had done with Isaac, Isaac sends Jacob now back to the land of his people in Haran to find a wife from among his family members. That's not typically where we look for our wives among our family members, but it was a different time and a different culture. You guys were quiet there. I hope it's not where most of you, this is not Arkansas. I hope it's not where most of you sought to find your wife. It scared me a little bit there. So we're going to pick up Jacob's story in Genesis 28. Jacob is traveling and we're going to look at a passage that many of you will, uh, will know will be familiar. Genesis 28, beginning with verse 10, Jacob is on his way now a journey of 200-something miles back to Haran. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." You hear in that, I hope, the echoes of the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that God reinforced with Isaac, and covenant that God now restates with Jacob. Verse 15, I am with you 
I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Some of you need to hear this morning, this statement from God about his character toward his people. This is not just God's promise. God does make some promises that are uh, culturally conditioned. They're, they're time-bound and conditioned for a unique person at a unique time. This is a promise we find from God over and over and over and over to his people. And some of you need to hear him say that to you again this morning. Let me read verse 15 to you again as the Lord speaks to you and to me. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Wherever you go, whatever you walk through, whatever season of life you're in right now, whatever fears you have, whatever hopes you have, whatever losses you've experienced, whatever wounds you're carrying, whatever insecurities you know drive your behavior and responses sometimes, God says, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. God will, will bring us continually back. This is not pressing the Old Testament text too far to say it is the grace of God that sets the boundaries in our lives against which we bump up against sometimes in our own sin. And yet God brings us back to the place of promise, companionship, and relationship with him. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This is in the background of the Apostle Paul's mind when he says to the church at Philippi that he has confidence that the God who began the good work in them, the God in whose glory they place their gratitude for their salvation, not themselves that somehow they chose God in their humanness, but the God who began the good work in them will actually see it through to its completion. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I was thinking about this when I heard uh, Lily say on the video there, I didn't expect, I didn't anticipate God to do in me what he's actually done in me this week. You and I never know what God's going to do when we gather as his people. That's part of what's so tragic about the, the apathetic way in which most confessing Christians in the United States handle their church attendance today. It's absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing for most confessing Christians and even church members to miss half of the Sundays in a year. Never in the history of the church have we seen that kind of apathy among at least professing Christians. Whether or not they are, the Lord only knows. But sometimes you're in a place and God is moving and you're not even aware of it for a while. Thankfully, usually it seems by God's grace, as with Jacob, if God intends to move and for you to see it, he will eventually get your attention. He'll open your eyes. But I, I want to point something out that I don't want you to miss here. Part of what, what Jacob is envisioning here is 
what we know to be to be uh, today to be ancient ziggurats. That's a funny word, ziggurat, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. But they were ancient temples, and we, we have many of those dotting uh, the landscape still in modern-day Iraq and Iran. One of them um, outside of Nazaria in Ur of the Chaldeans, ancient Ur of the Chaldeans in modern-day Iraq, is huge, well-preserved ancient ziggurat, this temple. And at the front of it, and you can Google this and see it, um, at the front of it is a massive stairway going up to heaven, to the heavens, where they understood God to reside. And it was this, this meeting place of, of heaven and earth, of the, the gods and people. But it was people who did the walking up to God. Not God in the form of his messengers, the angels, who were coming down to people. And part of what God is saying to Jacob is, I am with you. I have, to, I have to condescend to come down to be with you, but I have and I am. You can't work your way up to me. You can't manipulate me, Jacob, like you have everyone else in your life into giving you favor. You can't deceive me into pouring out blessing on you. God can never be mocked, church. He can't be confused. He can't be tricked. He can't be deceived. He can't be manipulated. Jacob, in what he had seen in his world at this time, would have absolutely understood the vision he was seeing, but he would have been tripped up by the fact that it's heavenly messengers, divine messengers coming back and forth, up and down to human beings instead of men going up and down to God. It's a picture of God's grace of God's transforming grace. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said all God's giants have been weak people who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. When you go back to work tomorrow, you don't go back to work in your own power and your own strength, or at least you don't have to. You students who just got back from camp, when you go back to school in what is now just a few weeks, You don't have to go in your own strength and your own power. God goes with his people. And we're able to do great things for God by God's grace and mercy because we know he is with us. So Jacob gets up and he continues on. He finally gets to the geographical area where his extended family resides. And we're gonna pick up his story there. He finds a well there. These uh, wells often, as you can imagine, uh, with the uh, high value of water in a desert and arid climate, had huge stones that covered them. Often these stones were, were carved meticulously to weigh several hundred pounds so that it took several men, not just one, to get it off, right? So no knucklehead could come through and knock it off, grab some water and go on and leave a clean water source uncovered. So Jacob gets to this water source, to this well. It's covered, the stones on it. There are other people coming. There are uh, some flocks gathering around it. When everyone who needs to be there at that time is there, they're gonna take this stone off and water their flocks. Let's, um, let's pick it up in verse eight of chapter 29. Jacob's having a, a back and forth with them now. And some of the shepherds who've gathered said, we can't until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Verse nine, while he was still talking with them, 
Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. He's so fired up at the sight of Rachel that he grabs the stone himself and you can just hear him. He pushes the stone off in this feat of masculine display before Rachel. He doesn't wait for anybody else. He wants to show her what he's got. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He probably sprung himself a hernia, right? Maybe pulled something and is growing. Who knows what's going on here? But you know, Rachel has, has to be intrigued by this bizarre guy. She gets here and this foreign guy's there. He looks at her, makes eye contact, swells up like He-Man, shoves the stone off the well that was designed to not be able to be shoved off by one man. You know he has to make noise. This is what you do when you lift really heavy. Then he turns around, grabs her, kisses her passionately. This is not today, right? They didn't have a hashtag Me Too movement then yet. He grabs her, he kisses her, and then he starts bawling. She's like, no such man have I ever seen before. He's a fighter and a crier. He weeps aloud. Now, maybe he really had torn something up. We know that he was not the outdoorsman. He was the among the tents guy. So he's not sure what's happening either. They end up going back to his family's, back to Rachel's dad's, Laban's house, which is his uncle. And Jacob begins to work for his dad. Or for his dad, for her dad, for his uncle, as a shepherd. Now, Pick it up again at the middle of verse 14. Well, we'll just read all 14. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, let me give you a little insight. Jacob is about to meet his match. He's going to meet his match with Laban. Because Jacob is a liar and a manipulator. But so is Laban, and Laban's had two and a half more decades of experience. So he's better at it than Jacob is. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. See what I'm, I'm going to read on through the rest of this passage, then we'll come back and work at it a little bit. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few years or a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. 
And Laban gave his servant Zilpah, or Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Very difficult passage, very different passage culturally than where we live at this time. But let's walk through this a little bit. Verse 16 introduces us to the two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And verse 17 says something very curious. And if you read multiple translations, you'll see different words here used for her eyes. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, what the writer of Genesis is not saying is that Leah couldn't see very well. Or he'd have said, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had great vision. She could see a long, long way. No, this is a comment about their physical appearance. There was something about Leah's eyes. Maybe she was cross-eyed, bug-eyed, high-eyed, low-eyed. I don't know. There was something about her eyes that made her not attractive. And what the writer of Genesis is saying, quite honestly, is Laban had two daughters. He had an ugly one and he had a gorgeous one. The ugly one, he knew, was an issue. He didn't know how he was going to marry that one off how he was going to get her out from under his roof, how he was going to get anything in exchange for her. I will say as a dad with two daughters, that wasn't a bad system. Where to, to uh, propose, to engage to a woman, you had to bring the father something, something of value. Um, I propose that we come back to that place culturally today. So you've got Leah here and Laban who's a shyster, he sees in Jacob the opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. Say, hey, I've got a guy here who can not only build my wealth and my business, my enterprise, he can also, if I play my cards right and carefully, take my first daughter, Leah, off my hands in one foul swoop before I give him Rachel. Now look at, look at what Jacob does. Jacob He shows his cards when he says, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban didn't really know what made this guy tick yet. But as soon as he says that, Laban's like, I've I've got him. I've got him. He's all about Rachel. Seven years, can you imagine? I'll work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. I'm in love with her. Now look at what Laban says in verse 19. He says, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, stay here with me. You know what he actually doesn't say? Yes. He doesn't actually say yes. He just responds to Jacob in a way that affirms what Jacob thinks he's going to say. Laban is very shrewd here. As we said before, Jacob has met his match. 
And then in verse 21, after seven long years that seemed but a day to Jacob because of his love and delight in being around Rachel, he comes to Laban and says, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. A bit crass, don't you think? Fairly forward and short of him. Time's up. I've done my part. Do your part now. Now, some of you know, some of you don't, that, that wedding feasts, like, can we just be honest? Weddings are bad enough to go to now most of the time. They were a week-ish long in that day, right? So I guess on the other hand, they knew how to party when it was time to shut down from working. They've got a week here. And at the end of the first day of partying and drinking and celebrating when night has come, old Laban dresses Leah up like Rachel. Now, I want you to sit in the, the, the pain and the reality of Leah at this moment. Leah knows who she is. She's grown up with her beautiful sister her sister with a great figure everyone comments on. And then there's Leah. And now she's fully aware of what her dad is doing. She's fully aware that for her to get into a marriage, someone has to actually believe it's not even her. Dad dresses her like Rachel. It's dark, sends her into the tent. Jacob sleeps with her. Wakes up in the morning. And the Hebrew actually here says, and behold, Leah. He wakes up in the morning and it's not the one he'd worked seven years for. Old Laban comes around and says, look, I don't know how it is where you come from, but here the grabby younger child doesn't get what is rightly due the older child. The older child gets what's theirs first, but I'll go ahead and give you Rachel in marriage. If you finish out this wedding ceremony this week with Leah, I'll give you Rachel. You work another seven years. Jacob agrees. He gets Rachel. He makes love to Rachel. And the text tells us that his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Now, I want to say here that because of all of the greed and the manipulation and the deception of these men, Laban, and Jacob. Leah's thrown into a kind of hell. She could have dealt with being single. Over time, she could have accepted that. She could have hardened her heart, calloused herself if she needed to, and she could have dealt with that. But now she's thrown into a situation where not only is she married to a man that doesn't love her, that happens, it happens today. But the woman he does love is her sister and she's in the home too. And she's his wife as well. And there's nothing in her day Leah can do about it. There's nothing she can do about it. But she tries. She tries. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive but Rachel remained childless. I don't want you to miss here again that the Old, Test the Old Testament gives us um, pictures of and shows us what the New Testament tells us, that God is a God who loves the outcast. God is a God who comes to the other, to the marginalized, to the one that's not like those who are on the inside. The Lord sees that Leah is not loved and his heart's turned toward Leah. And he gives her the ability to conceive. 
Now watch what Leah does. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. I'm giving him what all husbands in that day wanted, mostly from a wife. I'm giving him not just a child, but a son. But it wasn't to be. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, because he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons, so he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Every time Leah has a child, every time God gives her this grace, she says, now maybe my husband will love me. Maybe now he'll see me. Maybe now he'll cleave to me. And you see it in the names, Reuben, I'm seen. Simeon, I'm heard. Levi, I'm attached. And then in a famous sermon by Tim Keller, he points out, and rightly so, that verse 35 shows us the gospel. She conceived again. Let me read it one more time. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Let me give you some bad news and then some good news. But I will tell you that the good news is better news than the bad news is bad news. Okay? Here's, here's some bad news. You never ultimately control sin. It controls you. It controls you. It ripples out beyond you. It brings destruction in and through your life to others. It can never be kept just to you, it wreaks havoc all around your life. As we see in these stories, uh, parents who are completely messed up in their parenting of their children, the children end up parenting the same way and destruction and division and anger and wrath and estrangement results. And Leah's children hate Rachel's children and Rachel's children hate Leah's children. And eventually they conspire and sell Joseph, Rachel's favored son, into slavery. We'll look at that next week. Sin's like dropping up a stone into water, right? And the ripples just go out and out and out. You never ultimately get away with it. But we also see here that life is filled with cosmic disappointment. Now, you don't have to live very long until you start seeing that life is filled with disappointment. But it takes a little while to understand that life is filled with cosmic disappointment. Derek Kidner in an Old Testament commentary talks about this verse that in the morning there was Leah. Behold, Leah. He said, this is a miniature picture of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. Whatever, whatever you place your hope in, no matter what your hopes are for love, for marriage, career, success, adventure, in the morning, it's always Leah. When you get what you want in the morning, it's always Leah. It's never enough. It's never enough to satisfy that place. C.S. Lewis in his chapter on hope, on hope in mere Christianity, says most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know 
that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Now, if you've lived very long, you've found this to be true. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, when we first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And Lewis says, I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or vacations or professional careers. I'm speaking of the best ones possible. There was something we grasp at in that first moment of longing. which just fades away in reality. And what he's saying is uh, spouses may be a great spouse. The scenery may be breathtaking. The job may have turned out to be an excellent job. And yet the satisfaction we thought they would bring us evades us in the morning. It's always Leah. This world can't give us what we're needing. And it's in this context that Lewis writes his, his famous line, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What Lewis is getting at here is, is one more aspect of the bad news that, that we make life even worse through idolatry. And here's the idolatry of family. Now this is a traditional conservative form of idolatry. There are all kinds of idolatry that are called out in scripture, but this one is especially common in the burbs. Jacob says, when I get Rachel as my wife, then it's all going to be good. And if you know Jacob's story, it's not good even after he gets Rachel. Leah says, when I have kids, then through my kids, the love that I'm ultimately seeking from my husband's going to come to me. But that never happens. And here's the thing. If you, if you build your life on a spouse, or maybe you're not married yet, you build your life on a boyfriend or a girlfriend, at the very best, you'll be emotionally dependent At the worst, you'll be controlling and judgmental. And if anything goes wrong with that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that spouse, and it will. It will. If anything goes wrong, you go to pieces. You're devastated. You're completely torn apart because you've built your life on a person. If you build your life on your children, at the very least, you'll try to live your life through your kids until they hate you and don't have any identity of their own. At worst, you'll use them to gain love and approval because without them, you don't have a life. You don't have meaning and you crush them because that's not a weight that your children can bear, right? In suburban America, we live in this place right now where, uh, where uh, all of us as parents are, are, are so tempted to try to live through the achievements of our kids. We want to decorate our cars with stickers that tell the whole world about how great our kids are. And I don't know your car, so I don't think I'm talking to you specifically. Leah has children, but it doesn't satisfy our longing. And thankfully, 
by God's grace, she comes to see quickly that idols make the disappointment and disillusionment of this world far worse. That's the bad news. But the good news, which is better news than the bad news is bad, is that God, as we see in this chapter and throughout Genesis, works with, through, and in very imperfect people. Does he not? If you were here last week when I opened that sermon, if not, you can go back and listen to it. You see how very imperfect the people are that God works with. And this should encourage us. The Bible is not a book of virtues. Some of us want it to be that. Just a book of virtues with inspiring stories and heroic characters. So when we come to stuff like this where women are just being traded like property, when we come to, to stories where there's violence, where there's unfaithfulness, where there's things that uh, sometimes we can't imagine right now. We're so disappointed. We're like, that's what I don't like. This is what I, I, I don't trust about the Bible. But the Bible is very honest. The Bible is the story of God's redeeming grace. Not our redeeming personhoods. It's the story of how God is working with people who don't deserve favor, who can't live up to it, who wouldn't live up to it if we could. The Bible's a record of God coming to us. Of, as we're about to see, Jesus being the latter. See, here's the thing. Laban really, he really hurt Jacob. Laban really hurt Leah. Yet through his actions, and some of you need to hear this because some of you this morning have been really hurt by somebody. I mean, the kind of hurt that's intentional. And some of you, if you're honest, are struggling with guilt and shame because you've really hurt someone else and you know it. And you've seen the pain that your actions caused. But hear this this morning. Through Laban's actions, and they were despicable, Jacob begins to be humbled. Jacob begins growing in character. See, God had sent Jacob out through the direction of Isaac to character school. Joseph's going to get a little character school next week. Jacob begins to move toward becoming the person that God intended him to be. There is always pain in the process of becoming who God intends you to be. That has never shocked any other culture, but it does us. There's always pain involved in becoming who God created you to be. But in Laban, Jacob saw himself and he hated it. And by God's grace, he begins to change. Leah wonders how in the world she's going to survive this marriage. She thinks, well, child, that's how I'll survive it. I'll give my husband what every husband wants in our day. I'll give him a child. And she does, but no. And eventually through suffering, she stops looking to her husband and to her children to give her what she ultimately needs, to give her the value and worth that only Christ can give. I'm telling you this morning, only Christ can give you what you are so yearning for in your heart. And she gets it and she names the last child Judah. Don't miss the power of that. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I'm looking for, for nothing else other than to glorify the Lord. So she named him Judah. And Judah is the child 
through whom the covenant promise continues. Judah is the child through whom Jesus comes. God chooses Leah, the ugly duckling, the unwanted, the one who's tricked into a marriage to get out from under her father's home. In reality, compared to God's righteousness, God's beauty, God's holiness and character, we all look like Leah. But through Jesus, we all look like Rachel. Let's finish up Jacob's story. Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Jacob now has two wives. He has multiple kids and he's headed back to try and reconcile. Uh, reconcile. Reconcile reconcile is not even a word. Reconcile. Reconcile with his brother Esau. And and we run into one of the most mysterious passages in all of Scripture. And I'm not going to tell you this morning that I completely understand it and I can explain it for you because it's just simply not true. There's a degree of mystery here that I don't think anyone can fully explain. Verse 22 of chapter 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Before I go on, I just want to say, Jacob has two radical encounters with God when he's alone. You know how rare it is for us to really be alone? And I mean, we might be by ourselves, but we have devices constantly distracting us from an encounter that we might have with God that could be transformational. Don't fear being alone and being quiet, church. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. Unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. The best commentary, I think, on this short passage is found in Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. I won't read it right now, but I'll just say Hosea attributes this person that Jacob is wrestling with to an angel of God and God himself who's condescended to be with Jacob, to wrestle with Jacob, to restore Jacob, to give Jacob a new name and a new confidence in his mission before God. And Jacob goes out different. He goes out somehow changed from this encounter with God. And he changes his plans. If you read these chapters carefully, he'd planned to approach Esau one way, but he instead approaches Esau another way, a way that's far more bold and confident, even though it demonstrates great humility. He offers a great deal of material property to Esau when they meet. And look at Esau's response, and we'll finish with this. 33 verse 8, Genesis 33 verse 8. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? Now, don't forget that the last time Jacob saw Esau, Esau wanted him dead. Esau was just waiting, just waiting to kill him. And Jacob knew he could kill him. 
Jacob replies, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. This little phrase, my Lord, shows not an attitude of entitlement that Jacob had once had, but an attitude of humility that he now has. An attitude that's willing to acknowledge others as better than himself. That's willing to put others before himself. Verse nine, but Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me for, and here's the reason why. Sometimes I'll hear people say, uh, Jacob was doing this and calling him my Lord and offering him these things because he was afraid, but that's not what the text says. And it irritates me when I hear that. I want to say, just keep reading. Because verse 10 says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. There's something in Jacob that when, when he sees Esau and Esau offers him mercy and requires nothing from Jacob to reconcile, but Jacob's willingness, that is like seeing the God he's come to know. When we look at Jacob's life and think about it as the band begins to uh, make their way out on stage and prepare us to respond in worship, in communion, and prayer. We look at Jacob's life, as I said before, God doesn't want us to approach the scripture and look at Jacob as the hero, Abraham as the hero, Isaac, Joseph, anybody else, Moses, David. But to understand that in Jacob, we see glimpses, just mere glimpses of the one that is to come through his line. Because Jesus is the true and greater Jacob, just as he's the true and greater Abraham, the true and greater David. He's the true and greater Jacob. He is the true searcher who leaves his home to gather his bride to himself. He's the true and faithful husband who perfectly loves his bride, the church. Us, you, me, all who by faith in Christ have been reconciled with God through his grace and fulfills her deepest longings. He's the true community builder who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice that your sin and mine demands that the only blows we might experience are the blows of God's grace in our life that grow us, that sustain us, that wake us up and call us back to him. If Jacob's story doesn't somehow point you to Jesus, if Jacob's story doesn't somehow help you understand Jesus as the one who's come to earth, as the one who demonstrates the beauty of a God who reaches out to people because we can't reach up to him, then you miss everything about this story. In just a minute, I'm gonna pray for us. And while I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. And when I finish praying, you'll have an opportunity to drop in your connection cards. See, God's coming to us requires a response from us. It always requires a response from us. 
God never stops. His transforming grace goes in our life throughout the course of our lifetime, just like it did with Jacob. I don't know where you are this morning, but I know that you need to take steps even closer to Jesus in response to him having come all the way to you. You'll have a chance if you want to make any of that known to us on your connection card and drop that in. Chance to give for those of you who give on Sunday morning as opposed to throughout the week online or by text to drop that in. In response to the beautiful, beautiful grace and goodness of God. However you feel led to respond to God this morning, I pray that you will do so. Don't resist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that in Jacob's story, we begin to see glimpses of the power and the glory that belong only to you, God, as the one who comes down to a broken humanity. God, every other philosophy and religion in the world tells us what we have to do to work our way to you, God, or what we have to do to become what we're longing to be and to receive in the deepest parts of our hearts, God. Only the gospel comes to us and says, this time I will praise the Lord. He is the giver of life. He is the fulfiller of the promise. God, we love you this morning. We lift you up. Father, as we prepare to God, receive commitments through connection cards, Lord, and receive offering. I pray that you will bless all who are about to give, all who've given through this week. Grow them, stretch their faith, God, even as you stretch all that's giving to accomplish your purposes. I pray all this. Only through the blood and the power the beauty of Jesus in his name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.